listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. For me, I think there's a certain purity that comes <clears throat> pardon me, with thanksgiving. The idea that there is something, uh, a holiday that actually allows us to celebrate being thankful. Um, it's so much harder to commercialize that uh, than it is, say, you know, uh, uh, giving itself or consuming, purchasing. Instead, it's giving thanks for what we have not what we want. And I've always found that to be something really alluring. I remember even as a little kid kind of thinking that was kind of special, something kind of neat about that idea. Um, and I was considering the many things that I'm, I'm thankful for. <clears throat> I feel very fortunate uh, on so many different levels. Uh, there was a, a litmus test that was offered up some years back to me in, in a discussion with uh, uh, one of my teachers. And her point was, well, if you can answer this question in the affirmative, you're probably in good, a good place. And that is, could you die tomorrow and be happy with what's happened? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel so fortunate. There are things, obviously, I want to do. I want to dance with my daughters at their wedding. You know, I still want to surf Mavericks. I still want to, uh, uh, I mean, there are all sorts of things I want to do. Um, but it comes right down to it. Has there been kind of a, you know, could it all be taken away? In terms of practice, the, the question that, that kind of, I, I feel so fortunate that I had some, you know, a group of people actually who were able to kind of coach and coax this teaching, this dharma, along. And um, I was reminded of a, of a very simple question that came from another teacher that I thought was particularly valuable that I wanted to share with the group. What is it that you feel enlightenment will bring you? What is it you feel enlightenment will bring you? Because all of us typically have really, really fixed ideas on what it will bring us. Clarity, perhaps. You know, um, more patience. Uh, I mean, there are, there's an assortment of things that we usually can conjure up pretty readily the minute we are asked that question. What is it we feel enlightenment will bring us? And uh, I would encourage you to explore your mind for an answer to that. What if it doesn't bring you anything? What if it brings you precisely nothing? then is all this a waste? I would argue it's not. I would, I would propose that that kind of uh, 
stopping becomes this amazing place of relevance for a life that cannot help but be well lived. When we just stop. And that's something human beings have a very, very difficult time doing. Instead of stopping, we want to move, we want to get, we want to achieve, we want to push away, we want to run, we want to hide, we want to, whatever it is, but we'll do anything except stop. And so exploring your mind, exploring your body, exploring your feelings, exploring all of that stuff becomes really, really interesting surrounding this idea of what will enlightenment give you? What are your concepts around that? And then alternating that with, what if it brings me nothing? Then what? These are the kind of puzzles that we sometimes can can churn and burn with through the week. And I think it can be particularly valuable uh, as the holidays kind of unfold and as we spend time with family and loved ones and so forth. Um... It's, uh, it's really, I think, quite valuable to begin to explore what, what it is that gets in your way of freedom, of peace. Family has a way of bringing that up in really powerful ways. Sometimes, for the, you know, in positive ways, love being around your family. Other times, it's really, really interesting how the love that you have for family members the stories affiliated with that love and that connection can sometimes be so close that little things can light us up. So as we kind of begin to march into the holiday season, it's particularly valuable, I think, to consider your internal space at all times, especially when you're near those that are dear. So I realize kind of in my introductory battle session here, I've kind of gone all over the map, but it gets to be quite interesting to begin to focus, focus ourselves on what we think it is enlightenment will bring us. What is it, what would occur if enlightenment brought us precisely nothing? What's the reaction that the body and the mind feel in that space? Can we also turn our awareness the light of our awareness on our situation with such intensity that we can begin to give space to those stories that come up when things get kind of tense during the holidays. Like when you're trying to park. (laughs) That was amazing this afternoon. There was a tremendous crush of... uh, of uh, metal boxes we call cars um, all in, uh, in beautiful downtown Lafayette today. And I'm just trying to get to the mailbox, you know, the post office. And it was so hilarious. It was so intense. And people were so peaked and so, that I just, I just sat in my car and I kind of, I was giggling. And I felt very fortunate that I had a practice that allowed for a giggle to occur as opposed to, you know, giving someone, uh, you know, New Jersey high sign or something like that. I, it was really remarkable. But there was so much tension and there was so much anger at a very limited supply of uh, 
parking places and a very intense desire for people to get certain aspects of shopping done. It's just remarkable. In an everyday sense, we can use this practice so marvelously. And we can turn the heat up on that in here as we do this. One of the great Zen quotes that I <clears throat> I talk about a great deal is, uh, you know, this this guy approaches Yun Men, and Yun Men, just so you guys know, and this, as far as uh, ancient Zen, the the Zen canon goes, Yun Men was like the badass teacher. Okay, he was. He was violent, he was angry, full-on macho, you know, just um, everybody was afraid of him, but he would always, his teaching would always cut right to, the, right to the core of wherever a person might have found themselves. And so a monk decides rather, uh, you know, gets gutsy and says, so what are the teachings of an entire lifetime, or what is the ultimate teaching? And Yun Men says, an appropriate statement that's it. That's it. An appropriate statement or an appropriate response. In other words, this goes back to the idea that it's a Buddha with a Buddha. It's, it's we're, we're practicing with each other, with our lives, with our situation. We're developing a new relationship with our minds, with our bodies. It's with, 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 together, together. And his point in this commentary is, look, any response that is appropriate is the Buddha, is enlightenment. And so those of us you know, who are really into deconstructing whatever is being said, like, okay, well, what's appropriate? How do you define appropriate? And this, I think, can take on all sorts of different kinds of meaning, but I think one of the great guides looking through this is what's the most generous thing you could do in any given situation that includes you and the other person or people what's the most generous thing that tends to be an appropriate statement and generosity tends to come from stopping this is really kind of an interesting, interesting point, a reference point. When we really stop, when we're no longer moving toward or away from anything, when we are truly stopping, we are truly present. And when we are truly present, an appropriate response spontaneously comes from us to whatever is in front of us, whatever has just been born. Whatever situation has just arisen, we're able to give it one awareness. So I wanted to touch on this um, because the implications of this are huge. This means that any situation is an invitation. Any situation, good, bad, or in between, is an invitation to open more deeply.
Now, it's easy to kind of say that. You've heard me say it a trillion times. In fact, you're probably sick of hearing me say it. But every single thing, every single thing offers us a red, a red carpet into the house of God. Everything. Everything. From this perspective. Every situation that arises is an opportunity. An opportunity for an appropriate response. And we get to channel our inner Yun Men or inner Buddha or whatever you want to call it. Our awakened self is the self that perpetually engages in generosity for all beings, for the betterment of all beings. When we stop, this opportunity shows up in really, really powerful ways. When, when you keep in mind that the ego can only function when there is movement. So when we truly stop, the ego cannot function in its typical way. Which is exactly why, if you think about it, why these enlightenment factories of uh, 13th century Japan, um, and then earlier on the Chan in, in China and so forth, uh, you know, what did they do? They bound their monks up in these rather um, uncomfortable postures, all right? And what did they do? They said, sit still, don't move. Huh. It's amazing what that can do. So they figured it out. You stop bodily, and over time the mind will follow. Any of you who have done an extended retreat, you know this. The first day of the retreat is usually adrenal. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable, you know, but it's kind of like, here I am. And then the second day of the retreat is uncomfortable, you know. The body starts adjusting to really sitting still for a long time. And then day three is excruciating. It's really uncomfortable. And your mind is going nuts. Usually, you either have kind of a physical situation or a mental. If you've had both, it gets really fun. Okay, where your emotional, you know, craziness starts to kind of get peaked too. This is usually day three and day four. And then day five, usually something clicks, something hits, something snaps. The discomfort is still there. The, uh, uh, whether it's physical or emotional, it's still there. But the relationship to it has changed. It's no longer something you're seeking to avoid. Now... It's just the way it is. It won't last. You start physically recognizing, emotionally recognizing that the intensity that you have been experiencing, it doesn't last. Like everything else, it rides along the cosmic sine curve. <laughs> everything is temporary. We start to see and feel and realize this. And then we can stop. We just stop. We stop writing stories about how uncomfortable we are. We stop writing stories about how that person sitting across the zendo really bugs us. Or how that person who just took that parking place from us in the parking lot. You know, we stop writing those stories. Stop writing the stories about our crazy, you know, Uncle Phil who's just nuts and we know we're going to be sitting across from him at Thanksgiving. You know, whatever. We just stop. And there's a real gift that is received and simultaneously given when we can just stop. 
Voluntarily stopping is difficult. It's just difficult. It's, it's one of those things that, uh, I mean, few people can do it and, um, you know, willingly go into the zendo, let's say, or go into their meditation, their morning meditation. They do a really good job at just stopping. Maybe during the day, this person also does a great job of just stopping at work when something rubs kind of the wrong way or with a family member. Um, or as they're, you know, uh, eating lunch or whatever it is, some, something strikes, they're able to kind of just be present with it. This usually happens when somebody, somebody's been practicing a long time, when, a, when their meditative work really kind of starts taking uh, on a life of its own really beautifully, where stopping becomes the way they move through the world. This this occurs, uh, sometimes we, re- we refer to it as their life itself becomes a meditation. The other way uh, that I've, I've shared is that um, where we can just stop is when we hit a brick wall. The universe gives us these. Sometimes it's a near-death experience of self or a loved one. Sometimes it's a, a, you know, a horrific professional situation. Sometimes it's a glorious moment, like the birth of a child. Sometimes the universe has a way of stopping us in our tracks. And sometimes we're lucky enough to be there for it. We're there for our life as our life begins to reveal its depth and magnitude. I had someone describe their their experience of sobriety this way. And by the way, it was somebody who, there's no way this guy will ever sit in meditation, ever. Okay? Just, he's just not that type of guy. But his, he, his uh, familiarity with his internality, with his inter- interior landscape, is pretty clear. Because he hit a point when he knew, if I drink again, I will die. Most likely. It was really a really very, very interesting conversation I had with him. But that was his brick wall. We all have them. We all have them. They're gifts. Every one of them. Anything that gets you to stop is a gift. Voluntarily or learning how to stop becomes an even more powerful gift because you're taking the gift on, you're receiving it, and you're learning how to respond appropriately. You're learning how to give its blessing back. So, one of the gifts here that I just thought I'd I'd share, since we're talking about stopping here, is that when we do stop, um, and some of you may have learned this, we are shown what it is that we cling to. We're shown how it is that we grasp, and what it is that we grasp to, what stories we're most into. Um, and here again, I mean, this is the, this is the offering, this is the gift of, of, uh, meditation. And those attachments can show up into, in some really, really profoundly, profoundly interesting ways. I, uh, I was reading an article in, I want to say it was Tricycle. Uh, which is a Buddhist Buddhist magazine, and they were talking about people of color and how in Seattle they're they're working this uh, 
this Sangha experiment out where they are meeting people of color um, are forming their own Sangha because Buddhism and its practitioners tend to have a vast underrepresentation of, of people of color. Um, it tends to be largely white, largely educated. And that the vast underrepresentation of um, uh, African American, Native American, um, believe it or not, Asian, in the um, uh, in in the Seattle area was met with this idea. Okay, well, let's create a sangha for people of color, and the only requirement is that you not be white. And this is really really interesting in terms of attachment, because. It's very, very clear that, okay, well, if you're white, you're not welcome, on the one hand. On the other hand, as egoic as that is, you know, as, in other words, as boundary-ridden as that type of approach is, how is it that we get into this practice to begin with? We get into this practice because ego wants something. And so what happens is, typically, you will find, my guess, is that this situation wherein people of color have coalesced in the service of the Dharma so that they themselves can recognize an appropriate response, my take is the deeper that this goes, the more there will be a recognition that the color of one's skin the culture that one comes from, the nationality that one aligns himself or herself with becomes less and less and less important. Your history doesn't matter in terms of an appropriate response. In fact, your history can oftentimes make your responses utterly inappropriate. It's not to say that your history doesn't matter, but that your history tends to be something that offers tremendous stickiness. That attachment tends to come from one's past. Just like pain comes from one's past, typically. Stress and fear comes from one's future. Pain comes from one's past. Avoiding at all costs what happened before. Well, to this end, and I, I have actually a fair amount to say about it, you know, at some other, uh, maybe I'll blog about it or something, but I think this gets to be a very, very interesting, interesting place for us all to consider our own attachments. Meditation will point them out. Meditation cannot help but offer up a stark relief of, wow, here's where I'm grasping. And the gift of this is that the minute you can see where you're grasping, you can recognize how imperative it is that you let go. That the letting go is the obvious outcropping of just stopping. And so part of the inspiration of this, <laughs> this uh, Dharma talk tonight was a conversation I had with somebody who was saying, you know, you said that uh, the, entire, the entire Dharma can be you know, just stuffed into two words, let go. And, and it's, it was, the question was, brilliantly, well, what's prior to the letting go? Just stop. If you just stop, you cannot help but let go. When we start 
pausing authentically, mindfully, in whatever situation we might be in, suddenly the doors open. The windows of perception are clear. And what is seen is truth. What is experienced is truth. So, over the next week, consider studying your experience. That's what meditation is. But consider studying your experience as your experience is happening during your day. As you're cooking the turkey. As you are dealing with someone who's had too much to drink. As you're dealing with Black Friday and the rush to consume, the pressure to consume. I invite you to be supremely alert when you feel tension arising. This goes for me too. When that tension arises, there's a gift. There's a gift there. I invite you to be alert to the machinations of the ego as it tries to corrupt whatever offering is given. Be alert. Study. Be very aware. As you watch ego move into its, uh, as I sometimes refer to it, I, I, I refer to it as a bunker by pointing fingers or blaming another or another situation. Be very alert to that. Be very alert when you start feeling defensive. You can't feel defensive unless you're feeling attacked. And you can't feel attacked if you recognize truth. Beware and alert to your own tendency to attack. Aggression. Just be alert to that. That's a big one for me. It's one of the places I tend to go. I tend to lean in. It's the, uh, the curse of uh, being a teacher. Am I right? Because we know everything, right? Yeah. We don't know shit. <laughs> but that's a, it's a, it's a really interesting tendency. Um, or maybe, maybe it's uh, for you, it's to, to, fix, to fix something that you perceive to be broken. Uh, Regardless, just be alert. Be alert to your ego's tendency towards indifference. That doesn't matter. I'm neutral. Well, maybe so. Maybe not. Maybe you're in denial. Maybe there's a, a passive aggression that's going on within you. So destructive. 
worse yet, maybe there's a numbness that you have in relationship to your life. Be alert to that. Being alert to all these various um, pitfalls, traps, and snares on the path helps us generate an awareness that cannot help but continually offer up what you and men called an appropriate statement or an appropriate response. Incredibly generous. And it allows for the spontaneous expression of both wisdom and compassion in any given moment. That is Buddha. You are that. So you have someone in your life that's resistant to things. Doesn't want to talk about anything. Doesn't want to talk about anything. How do you deal with that? Um, I think uh, I'm always hard pressed to advise trying to talk to somebody who doesn't want to talk because it becomes a mess. You know, somebody, somebody really doesn't want to talk, but you want to talk, then it's an opportunity for you to look at your own desire. Okay. Um, there are ways of being heard that don't always involve a discussion. I'm a huge fan of letter writing. Email has made that so much easier. Letters get read typically. It's a very rare person that takes a letter or takes an email and goes, oh, it's from, I'm not going to read that. That's a very rare, most, they might say that. I didn't even read it. You know, most people will actually read. Um, and then not only will they read it, they'll re-read it. Which means that you need to be very careful. So I do have some thoughts about how to do that most effectively in ways that can be heard if you're interested. It'll be quick. Are you interested? Take all the emotion out. The minute, the minute you, there's anything in the way that you write it that can be perceived as a, mm, or a, uh, you know, a punching or a stabbing or whatever, is the minute that letter then becomes a boomerang. But if what we're interested in is an appropriate statement, we want to make sure we can do is give that appropriate statement in a way that can be heard. We call it upaya in Buddhism, which means appropriate. Uh, it's, it's skillful means, I should say. Skillfully making it so that you can be heard. And this is what teaching is. I had this, I had this one teacher, this math teacher in high school, who uh, could explain, um, he could explain concepts in three or four different ways. And I always knew that no matter what the concept was, he was going to hit me with one of those four ways of doing it. It was remarkable. Because he could hit you know, the higher-end kids and the medium kids and the low-end and then the kids who were hopeless. 
all within five minutes and drawing on the board while he was doing it. I mean, he's really gifted at that. And that's essentially, you know, at, at our best, those of us on the cushion, if we're, if we're doing it right, you want to try to make sure that you give something for the advanced, the, you know, uh, uh, the medium-level student, you know, and then the novitiate, you know, the, the, new, the newer, kind of like a tall, grande, and then <laughs> venti, <laughs> various dose of dharma, you know. Um, one shot, two shot, exactly. But this becomes a really, really cool opportunity for practice for you. Because the fact that they aren't maybe agreeing with the way you see things and you want to talk to them about it and get them to agree to it or whatever, then that becomes a push. The dance really is not about push. It's about meeting. And if they feel met, dialogue usually can happen. If they feel pushed, they usually want to run. hope that's somewhat helpful. Yeah. yeah thanks for the question. Nice one. Young man? Referring to generosity in general as you relate to somebody else. How does it work when it's a relationship to yourself? So that's, that's uh, I guess we could call that a $200,000 question. Um, it's, we go at it from two, two angles. Number one, Generosity to oneself is offering up a response to something that brings out your deepest consciousness. Okay? That tweaks your depths. Okay? It's not necessarily something that makes you happy which might be very, uh, 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 you know, kind of a cool thing, but it's usually the, the byproduct that occurs when we are most, at our most conscious. When we're at our most generous, we are most happy. And there's all sorts of great research to back this up. We are at our serotonin and dopamine levels are at, our, are at their highest when we're eating food, okay? Second, it's when we're actually giving to someone. Isn't that interesting? When we're giving... Of ourselves to another person. Um, I wish I could footnote that. I don't remember where that where that was, but I think it was coming out of Dave, UC Davis. I think they did this thing on it. I, it was like, on the one hand, totally obvious; on the other hand, fascinating. When we are giving of ourselves, and we're coming at it consciously, meaning we're not expecting anything in return, we're just giving totally. That generosity that 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 we're giving outwardly comes back okay so from in a spiritual sense when we are meeting our life fully when we are fully present okay we are naturally being generous to self and other because the boundary between self and other isn't there we are quite simply walking through our lives with that christ consciousness or that buddha mind it, where it gets sticky is when it becomes referential. The minute we start referring to ourselves, that's where it gets really, really interesting. If we start referring, um, um, if we start categorizing and compartmentalizing, and it can happen. I remember, 
I remember when a statement was written about Al Gore and about how he was one of the most, everybody really, really enjoyed his presence. But when he started running for president, lots of shifts occurred um, in his approach towards meeting people. He would immediately go for rapport with someone by bringing up something that he felt that would establish rapport with them. And what it did is it tended to turn people off. I think it was New Yorker. I think it was the New Yorker where I read this. But it was so fascinating because what he kept doing was trying to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about me. And so everything started to be, rather than a gener- you know, generously giving of himself, as the article went on, it was about how he was basically pulling attention into, he was advertising, right? And so as a result, there, was, there wasn't this way for him to connect by giving, which is something paradoxically that George W. Bush did brilliantly. Say what you want about his politics or whatever, that guy could connect with human beings. He could work a room, you know? And you talk to his, his, his friends at Yale, they said exactly that. This guy knew something about everybody and he knew how to connect to them at their level. He exemplified at a social level Upaya, skillful means. And so that skillful means is kind of a roundabout way of kind of answering your question, becomes a practice of generosity that is all inclusive. It's not just I'm being generous to them, it's what's what's the most giving thing I can do? I hope that makes a little bit of sense. I'm really long winded tonight. I can tell you guys are exhausted. Everybody's looking at me with like eyes going. What about what happened to the slideshow? Part two. Memes. Oh yeah. That's the only reason we came back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? More colors. More colors. Yeah. You guys wanted to know a little bit more about some spiral dynamics. You're gonna have to wait. I guess I totally forgot. You told us last week. I know, man. I'm a liar. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you were, clearly. Yeah. I created that attachment, yeah. Cheers. It's my fault. It's my fault. <laughs> Anything else? Or do we, we leave with that? <laughs> mm. let's, let's wait. Let's wait on that. Anybody else? Let me, oh, sorry, Karen, yeah. How does one let go of numbness? How does one let go of numbness? Well, numbness is actually the refusal to let go. Okay, so let me explain. Numbness actually can either be kind of, we, we can either bring it on or we can cultivate it. And so it's, it's a protection it's a bunker. It's 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 a it's a it's an aspect of the bunker that the ego builds to stay safe, right? And so, what meditation does is once again, like I said, is it calls that practice of cultivating numbness. It calls that. It just it it starts to show it to us. I, I always I love using the term stark relief because that's really what happens. It becomes a texture of our experience that we can identify.
quickly, okay? So one of the ways we bring it on is through behavior. Pot, coke, alcohol, right? It could be a drug. But it could also be just a behavioral practice. Shopping, our sexuality, the, our, our eating habits, right? And so you can, you can look at it as something that's an add to or something that's very much a part of life or whatever. It becomes, it becomes the aspect of addiction that we, that we build because we're too afraid to face our own pain. All addiction works that way. All addiction, it starts because we cannot face our own pain and the addiction itself merely exacerbates our pain. And so what's really radical about the teaching is it says, get exposed, right? And meditation will expose you to all of those things, all of those impulses that want you to hide, want you to get back in the bunker, want you to, you know, take that extra drink or, you know, have that extra conquest or, or get that extra, you know, dress or pair of pants. Are you with me? Okay. So... The behaviors tend to numb us. They tend, which is exactly why you find people whose, I'll give you an example, um, uh, uh, alcoholism or drug addiction, when it begins in the, um, uh, especially between, between 18 and 24, okay, uh, or even a little bit earlier, the brain's going through its second, its second huge surge in growth and so forth. And what they're finding that I think is so fascinating is that, the, the stunting that tends to occur emotionally in a person who, let's say, abuses alcohol as their, num- as, as their way of numbing themselves, what happens is their emotional plane tends to halt at that developmental space until they get sober, at which point they can actually begin growing again. But it's like it puts a freeze on it, and it's not just alcohol. It's whatever addiction we may we may uh, seek out or find or hang on to, okay, including Buddhism, all right, whatever the addiction is, it, it becomes a way for us to hide. And so the antidote to the hiding is not hiding. And meditation forces that. Meditation forces us into this space of total exposure. And what happens is we go through this period of what oftentimes feels like just cold turkey in the worst possible way and then we realize you know what this discomfort that i'm feeling right now this pain this horror this whatever isn't going to kill me and then we get into the cliche that which does not kill you makes you stronger right okay but there's some real validity to that because suddenly ego is forced out of the bunker ego is seen as the emperor without any clothes ego is seen as the great and powerful oz the illusion is seen through. And from that point onward, freedom becomes a very natural outcropping. So the way out of numbness is to look very carefully at the impulse to numb. That's step one. Step two, stop it. Just stop it. And there are all, all sorts of ways of, of helping with that cessation, you know, whatever it is, whatever the addiction is, you know. Um, I'm a big believer in, in programs that can help people out in that regard. I'm also a big believer in this practice 
with, with a group, with a teacher, with a teaching. Man, it's amazing what it can help, help do. Um, but leading an exposed life where hiding is not an option, where escape is not an option, allows for light. Allows for light. Thanks for the question. Real quick, yeah. Real quick, um, this yeah. Up. So when you say meditation brings something to light, is it while you are on the cushion, or is it that your light is it throughout your day? Or I always get a little confused. It's, it's collateral light. So it's not only light that happens okay. on your cushion, it's collateral. It, it extends throughout your... You'll be amazed as your practice kind of starts to deepen how the rest of your day is affected. And this applies to mood, this applies blood pressure, it applies to all sorts of physical, bodily things, but it also applies to appropriate response and one's ability to give and offer up an appropriate response that incorporates self and other. Yeah, it doesn't stop on the cushion, nor does it start on the cushion necessarily. It's just the cushion allows for meditation to do us. It allows for this very natural stillness that is is at the core of the universe. It allows us to come through us consciously. And the felt sense of that is love, which is the ultimate in generosity. Thanks for coming tonight. Appreciate it.